Turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to be uh, going through 1 through 6. I originally planned on doing all of chapter 16, uh, 17. Uh, did I say 16? Oh, boy. So go to 17, not 16. We already did 16. But I was originally planning doing all of 17, and then it just got to be way too much information to cover. And so we're just going to do 1 through 6. The title, of course, is The Lamb Conquers Babylon. And we might have to ask ourselves, well, who is Babylon? But it's been a while since we've been in Revelation, so I think we should start with a review. Um, I'm not going to do it too extensive, but we need a, a, the divine outline for Revelation, which is in Revelation 1.19. It says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So Jesus' outline of Revelation was what was seen, Jesus glorified, verses 1, 9 through 20, what is the seven churches, which is chapters 2 through 3, and what will be, uh, which is Jesus' judgment in the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, Revelation 4 through 22. Now, we're going to be uh, in Revelation 17 through 18 for the next couple of weeks, and these are two visions which expound on the fall of Babylon in the bold judgments and also, I believe, in the trumpet judgments, okay? So it's, these are like repetitive uh, in the sense of it's looking back uh, in the text on Babylon, now, let's turn and begin in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So now we have a great prostitute, and she is seated on many what? Waters, Okay. And with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, it says in Revelation 14, 8, is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drunk with the wine of, her, of the passion of her sexual immorality. So how should we view the great prostitute in Revelation? And there's a lot of debate about how we should view the great prostitute in Revelation. So we basically have four options. The first, she is a cryptic reference to Rome, used by the early church to keep certain truths from persecutors as seen in 1 Peter 5.13. Speaking of a lady at a church, she who is at Babylon, speaking of Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So they're using it as a code. Who likes codes? You ever get those codes and you figure them out, like on the cereal box? Do we even do that anymore? Probably not. 
used to do that? Yes. Yeah, so it's a code. It's, it's code for, for, bow, for Rome, okay? So it's a cryptic reference to Rome, a code for Rome. So that's the first option. So she is Rome. Second, she is the city of Jerusalem as an apostate set against God. Apostate means to oppose, to fall away, okay? And um, so some people think this. Um, I don't think it's a really good option because typically uh, Babylon is always opposed to God in Scripture. And Jerusalem, the majority of the time, is standing with God. And definitely in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is always with God, okay? God is fighting for her in the book of Revelation. Third, she is a metaphor for the entire world system set against God. So she is everything that embodies evil, basically. So this includes all major cities through time, Sodom, Gomorrah, right? Nineveh, Babylon, L.A., right? Uh, Sin City, right? All, all the cities through time. So it's not bound to one city, except that in the fulfillment of the destruction, it would be bound to the cities of that time, the end of time, when Christ returns. Fourth, she is a revived Babylon on the banks of the Euphrates River, once again, leading the world in, world in an apostate religion. Remember, Babylon starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 10 with the Tower of Babel. Babel is the Hebrew word name for Babylon. Babylon is the Greek name for Babylon. So Babylon goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. And what did they want to do in Genesis chapter 10? Did they want to obey God or disobey God? Anybody remember? Well, yes. No, they didn't. That's right. They wanted to disobey God and build a tower to reach the heavens so they could gather together in one place when God had said, go and spread and multiply and fill the earth, right? So they were apostate. They said, we want to do what we want to do. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. So uh, all the world is apostate, and Babylon leads the charge in that. So uh, it's a historical Babylon that is renewed. It's the, sometime in the future, uh, Babylon will be rebuilt, um, and, and then God will de destroy it. Right now, since, since the 6th century BC, uh, AD, um, there has been no Babylon. Uh, it's just a pile of ruins, okay? Um, you can go actually to uh, the Orient Institute in Chicago, and see ruins uh, from Babylon uh, that they brought there from an excavation, a, a dig, there we go, from a dig they did there um, a long time ago. So here we go, the preterist lens, that's the idea that uh, all of this has already happened, so uh, Revelation was written to the first century and all the prophecies in the first century for Revelation happened in that century to Jerusalem. It was the destruction of Jerusalem so, and, the, and, and Rome. So it all happened there, and all we're waiting for is the second coming of Christ, um, and that's the next thing on the time event. So a preterist lens will favor her as a cryptic 
reference to Rome, all, sees it also as Jerusalem, and because they see it as a judgment on Jerusalem, because uh, Jerusalem uh, had a history of not being faithful to God, so now she's a prostitute, she's, she's selling herself to all the other gods, okay? So that's the way a preterist uh, sees it. Um, not the lens that I will, but it, it has its, its merits. The idealist lens is going to favor her being a metaphor for the world system set against God. So the idealist sees it as, yeah, this, this prostitute, this great prostitute, is, it just symbolizes the, all the religions in the world that are all opposed against God, that all come together at the end of time to take man away from God, right, and persecutes the church, okay? And so, uh, and th God is coming back, and he's going to wipe all that out. That's the idealist, so it's very general, it's not specific, um, but it is still about God conquering evil. Uh, the, the futurist lens is going to favor a revived Babylon, um, which is the idea that Babylon at some point will be rebuilt on the river Euphrates um, in all its glory, and then uh, it will get judged, and um, the, the prophecies that were written uh, to about Babylon will be totally fulfilled. Now, many people think those, like Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50, have already been fulfilled concerning Babylon, because Babylon right now, for since the 6th uh, century, uh, has been uh, set desolate uh, for, for many, many years. So, um, so other futurists uh, think that it's a cryptic reference not to historic Rome, but to a Rome, a revived Rome in the future. And so both of these have reasons and arguments, and I don't have time to get into all that tonight, but, but there you go. Um, as we go through this data, you can try to decide what you want it to be yourself. The Old Testament language for this passage in Revelations comes from Isaiah 21, actually the whole chapter, but I think I'll just read verse 1 to give you an idea. It says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Now, a wilderness of what? The sea, doesn't that sound odd? Uh, a desert, wilderness means desert, uh, or can be translated as desert. A wilderness of the sea, so those we got, what do we got? We got desert and we got what? Yeah, water, right? Yeah, okay. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. So John is taken in the spirit to the desert, okay? Now, why is that significant? Well, he's taken in the spirit to the desert because he's going to see something scary, and something drastic. He's also in the spirit to show the validity of his message. Okay, Ezekiel is in the spirit. Many prophets go are being taken into the spirit when God is speaking to them. Bill writes, which is a commentator that I read for the book of uh, Revelation. Though the desert can be a place of protection for God's people, right? Uh, it, they will wandered in the desert for. 40 years. In chapter 12, where does the, the, the lady, the, the, great, the great woman, flee? 
of Revelation. Where does she flee? She flees to the desert, so a place of protection for the people after the exodus and in the end of time. And it's also a habitation of fierce animals like serpents and evil spirits. It's a place of sin and judgment and persecution of the saints. So here we can say John is taking <coughs> is taken to a place of Babylon's judgment because of the context. It says that he's going to judge the great prostitute. John only, only John's only other use of desert is in Revelation 12, where the red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, pursues the woman Israel who is in opposition to the prostitute. Israel is everything good, while the prostitute is everything bad. And this is why I don't think Jerusalem being the prostitute is a good thing, because John is, obvi- I mean, uh, a, lo- a logistic, uh, a legitimate uh, interpretation, because John, throughout here, you're going to see him contrast uh, Israel or Jerusalem with the prostitute. And then you're going to see him contrast the prostitute with the bride of Christ. Hey, guys, pay attention. Thank you. The Old Testament in- imagery also comes from Daniel chapter 2, 41 through 44. And then the whole chapter of, of Daniel 7, but uh, especially focusing on Daniel 3 through 7, verse 20. Uh, through 24. And then we're going to take a look at these in the next week in the interpretative section of the passage. We're not going to have time to cover that tonight, so we're going to pick that up. But if you read those for next week, they're going to be fresh in your mind, and and that'll be good. So she is depicted as a prostitute. Why? Because she leads the world away from God with her apostate religion. She causes the world to commit adultery through idolatry. Okay? She causes the world to commit adultery. Adultery is cheating on your spouse. Right? Idolatry is worshiping another god. Right? And if you read Hosea, Hosea makes the parallel between the things. So Israel is God's wife. And when Israel goes after God, other gods then she is committing adultery, see? And so here God is saying, all the people, the whole world is to be faithful to me. I created you to worship me. I created us to be a family. That's what you're supposed to be, and you choose not to. You choose not to be faithful to me and to commit adultery, okay? So she... And the beast is full of blasphemous names. And this communicates she contains all that is opposed to God. That's what it means when it has these blasphemous names. Every God that is not God brings a a blasphemy against God. It's opposed to God. As we see this evil and the evil around us, let us remember the lamb conquers. It was just last uh, the middle of this week, there was that school shooting. It was so tragic. Four, I believe four people died. We live in a very evil, evil world. It was, I think, in Perry, Iowa. 
and we look around, and there is bad things going on all around us. And you know what? Sometimes we are even the source of those bad things, right? We have sin in our own lives, and we can know that the Lamb has conquered it. He paid for it on the cross. He rose from the dead, setting us free from sin and death. The Lamb conquers. He's coming again to set all things right. So as we continue to look at this prostitute, this evil force, may we remember that God walks through brokenness. And he's walking through this brokenness, and he's walking through the brokenness in your life. The woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. The thought actually stops at the drunk on the blood of the saints of the martyrs of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about when I saw her, I marveled greatly next week because that goes with the next section. They didn't put this verse 6 and uh, 7 in a convenient spot for the breaking of the paragraph. But the Old Testament background comes from Jeremiah 51, 6 through 7 and Hosea 14 through 12, and it says the Jeremiah 51, 6 through 7 says, Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. So here we are called to be out of the world, aren't we? We are called to come out of the world by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in the heart that God raised him from the dead by not doing the things of the world. Right? So we are to come out. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the time, the repayment he is rendering for. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. And then Hosea 4.10 through 12 says, They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish. Hordom, wine and new wine, which take away understanding. Many people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For the spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. So here they're speaking of idols carved in wood, and, and they think that the idol, uh, the, the wood has power, or the spirit behind the idol is, is who they choose to worship. And, and today we don't necessarily worship uh, as Americans very many wooden idols or, or golden idols, but we do make idols out of our comfort. We do make idols out of our, our economic success, right? And we are oftentimes unfaithful to God because of that. So here, purple and red attire portray the clothing of royalty. So she it has a royal status. 
Concerning the color red, Beale writes, we have seen that the red color of the dragon and the beast in Revelation 12.3 and Revelation 17.3 show their persecuting nature. So who are they persecuting? They're persecuting the church, right? The, the people of God. With her attire, she stands in contrast to the Lamb's bride, portrayed as a city adorned with precious stone, pearls, and gold in Revelation 21, 2 through 2, 9 through 23, and clothed in bright, pure linen, which respectively represents the glorious reflection of God's presence and the righteous deeds of the saints. So she's contrasted to this. She's not the church, obviously. She's everything that's not the church. She's opposed to the church. She is adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, which speaks to her economic prosperity. And with this economic prosperity, she attracts humanity to drink, to partake of her abominations. There are so many things that people do because they think that they got to do it to get ahead. So in the fourth century, you could not have an economic success without worshiping the gods of your city and your country. Bill writes, customarily, each trade guild had patron gods to which members had to pay homage as well as to the Roman emperor. If Christians did not participate in such homage, they were economically ostracized and prevented from practicing their trade. The whole of Revelation 17 represents these religious, economic aspects of society, which often work in conjunction with the political state. And a futurist would say that a time is coming that you will not be able to engage in culture without ascribing to uh, engage in the economics of culture without ascribing to the faith and values of that culture. Meaning you won't be able to buy or sell unless you take the mark. And we know what mark we have, don't we? We have the mark of Jesus. And if that day comes, then the Lord will provide because he takes care of his own. We can be tempted to join the world and to make economic success more important than God. In fact, oftentimes we're tempted by that every single day. But we must be careful not to drink from her cup. We can't give her the credit. We can't worship her. We can't worship money. We need to worship God and know that God will provide. And, and this worship bears out in our actions. If you want to know what you're worshiping, look what you're doing with your money. In verse 5, her name is written on her forehead, depicting her alliance with the beast and his nefarious schemes, or his evil, evil, evil schemes. That's why it's nefarious, it's because it's extra evil. And his evil schemes are to kill and destroy and to wreak havoc on earth. He's trying to supplant God 
in your life. He's trying to supplant God for everyone on the earth. But if we've confessed Jesus as Lord, then his name is written where? What's his name written? On our foreheads. That's right. Boom, right there. Okay? As seen in Revelation 22.4, they will see Jesus' face and his name will be on their foreheads. If we have... Oh, oops. She does not like our alliance with Yahweh. For in verse 6, she is drunk on persecuting the saints who bear witness with Jesus, to Jesus. And when we bear witness to Jesus, that means we talk about Jesus in our homes. It means we talk about Jesus in our work. It means we talk about Jesus in our community. As witnesses for Jesus, it can be overwhelming and it can be frightening in a culture that continues to grow more hostile to people who believe in Jesus, to people who believe in absolute truth and right and wrong. And as we walk further into this culture, I I ask that we don't become more callous, but that we become more winsome. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And may we have that love extended to them. And in doing so, may we shine the light of Jesus to them. Yet, we need to remember also that Jesus is conquering it all. It's all under the blood. It's all under the cross. It's all been subjected until the day when he returns. And he's working in it all for our good and his glory. And and that's hard to to swallow sometimes when you're in the midst of something hard, but I want you to remember that. That's one of the three R's, right? We need to remember, reflect, and then be renewed by God. So remember. Remember that he is victorious and that in him all things work together for good. And then lastly, let's remember that the lamb conquers And trust him in the journey. Trust him in the journey. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are conquering Babylon, the the great prostitute. That you are conquering evil. And you are conquering all the world religions that are opposed to you. And you are bringing it in your perfect timing in a new heaven and a new earth that we get to rule and reign with you. Help us to hold to that truth and to that hope that's sure and steadfast. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.